Um, we're really excited. We've just recently, we've snagged some new awesome mics. We have a really good tech team uh, that gives really good instructions. Uh, it's just, I'm not a very good listener of instructions. Um, and that's why I can't get the mic on. But we've got it going now. And um, hey, we just want to let you know, we're so excited that you're here to, to just join in um, and spend your Sunday night here with us out of Beyond. We know it's a sticky one too, but like Locke and Chris said, uh, if you need any water, there is some cold stuff up at the back until it's down the back if you drink too much as well. But we are, we're really excited just to be able to spend this night with you. And you're jumping in at a great time as well. And I'll unpack more about that uh, in a second uh, too. Uh, but before I do, oh, there it is. <laughs> before I do, to, to kind of lead you into to what we're looking at nice tonight as a, uh, as Lockie and Chris said, we're jumping into a series. We're in part two of a series called Scary Close. We're really, we're looking at this idea uh, that the better we get at relationships, the, the greater our life can be. Uh, and before we kind of look into that tonight, I, I don't know about you, but to get kind of personal with you for a second and get you just kind of thinking within your personal life as well. I don't know about you, but I really believe that every car has some type of defining statement. That every car has some type of defining statement. And maybe you only need to think about your own car or one of your friend's car uh, to know that, that each car kind of has something that defines it and kind of links to the person too. But, but maybe there's just something that really defines your car that just makes it special. Maybe it's the fact that your car is yellow or maybe it's the fact that you have a great stereo. Maybe uh, it's the fact that you have really good cup holders or if you, you have like a great bubble head at the front. Or, or maybe there's uh, some things you're not as proud of about your car or that your friend's not as proud of about their car that makes it a defining statement. Maybe have a dodgy aircon unit. Maybe you have like a serious bat poo stain on the front of your car that you've never just really been able to get rid of. Maybe your car has that scent that you just, it's just a little bit smelly. Maybe you've got a smelly car. Maybe that's your defining statement when it comes to your, st- uh, your car. But the defining statement for my Corolla hatchback uh, is something that's just been kind of happening and building up over the last couple of months. The defining statement for my Corolla hatchback is the windscreen wipers. And I know if you have a normal car, unlike my Corolla hatchback, you would have a car where the windscreen wipers just do this really nice kind of wax on, wax off movement. Uh, you see, for me, my Corolla hatchback, it's a completely different system. You see, when I go driving, when it rains, my Corolla hatchback, one of the wipers will start off with just that nice kind of wax on, wax off. Mind the hips here too, because they're about to get crazy. You see, the wipers kind of go back and forward, but then all of a sudden, just one, just one of the wipers slips off its wipe, and all of a sudden, that plastic bit gets on the windscreen and starts making that screeching noise. And it's kind of like someone waving at you, but just waving at you because they don't like you. And the windscreen wiper just goes crazy, and next minute, it starts moving around. The Shakira hips come out because that windscreen wiper is taking up the whole windscreen. It's making noises. You're on the highway. You just want to pull over and stop, but you can't because you're driving 110. And then the Shakira movements goes into like that wacky inflatable man that sits out the front of the car dealer, and the wiper's just going mad. It's scratching back and forth. And literally, I can tell you right now that I I would have loved to have changed my windscreen wipers in the last two weeks when we've had all this great rain, but I just couldn't. I just didn't deal with it. I never confronted it. So now the defining statement of my Corolla hatchback is my windscreen wipers, which I am now named Shakira because they have just gone back and forth. And the crazy thing is, is that my windscreen has just now got this perfect screech mark that just goes over just the driver's side. And there was many probably opportunities for me to go to Repco and get a new wiper, but I didn't. I didn't do it. I didn't actually do uh, what I needed to do in order to fix what I knew was going to happen, and that was a scratched screen. You see, my windscreen wipers have now become this defining feature and left a defining mark on my little hatchback. And I neglected to deal with it over the last couple of months, like I said, and like I actually just didn't deal with it at all. And I think as we talk tonight, just around this idea of actually getting scary close and looking personally, like I said, within our own life, 
looking within us, uh, there's some things that, that we have going on just in terms of our insecurities. That The longer we choose to not actually deal with what we're actually processing on the inside when it comes to our, our thoughts and our feelings, but also some of the standards that we set of ourselves, the longer we can lead it, uh, allow it to actually define us, to become a defining statement in, the la- in our life. Uh, and we said last week, if you joined us uh, in part one, with Chris, we said last week that you can't change what you refuse to confront. That you can't change what you refuse to confront. And in checking in with homework, in part one, we kind of left you with kind of an application next step to do for yourself. And if if you weren't here for part one, that's all good because I'm about to run you through it. We actually said to go away and step into your week and write down your insecurities just on paper or on your phone so you can name and identify them. And if you're coming in just for this week, we are, we're looking at this idea, this series that's all about helping you get better at relationships so that you can get better at life. And that involves getting a little bit close to people. And tonight, what we're really zoning in on is this antidote, this antidote to these insecurities within us. And this antidote doesn't point to you numbing yourself by scrolling on the screen. It doesn't point to you eating more ice cream. It doesn't include seeking out security by being in some type of relationship with someone else. This antidote isn't a mixture of passivity, of pretending, or people-pleasing. What we're all looking for in an antidote to insecurity is really, I believe, an answer to this question. This question of how can I feel and how can I know I am enough? How can I feel and how can I know I am enough? enough. I know for a fact that, that we as people, we don't always feel known. Not everything we do is always seen, but we don't always feel known and we don't always feel understood when we let our insecurities drive us. And our insecurities lead us to not feeling fully secure around people. And for that reason, we can feel distant to the people that we actually feel, or sorry, more so, that we can feel distant from the people that we're actually physically close to, the people that are actually close to us in our life. And we noted last week what insecurity kind of looks like in action. That insecurity in action can look like a lot of things and reveal themselves in a lot of ways when it comes to our relationships. That insecurity in action can look like you just struggling with the success of others. That insecurity in action can look like social media actually determining your mood. That when insecurity reveals itself through our relationships, we can actually start to blame others more than we accept responsibility ourselves. That we can begin to resist or find it difficult to actually receive feedback in conversations. Or even the fact that others' opinions, others' opinions about you dictate how you feel about you. That insecurity in action, when it reveals itself in relationships, can be, uh, you can feel more influenced than you're actually an influencer. And why? Why is this a case? Why is it that insecurity looks like this in actions? Well, the big underlying denominator is that our insecurities say that we are made for less. Our insecurities scream They make that annoying screeching noise in front of us. They tell us, I'm not enough. I'm not fun enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not prepared enough. I'm not brave enough. I'm not needed. I'm not wanted. I'll just fail again. I'm too inconsistent. I'm too unpredictable. And it's a lot easier to hide and run than to bear the feeling of shame when we feel insecure. Because getting scary close is scary. But here's a little bit of a silver lining for us. Because insecurity isn't this all-new phenomenon. It's something people have been experiencing since as long as there have been people. And you see, one day, one day, Jesus actually encountered a super religious person. And you see, this man, he was a Pharisee. He was a religious expert. He was the kind of person that knew all the rules that, uh, that the religious people should be following. He could quote all the Bible passages. He had opinion about every social situation. 
And he was competent. He was so competent in his religious law and study. But the reason he fixed himself on it was probably because he wasn't super competent at a lot of other things in his life. See, this person was incredibly insecure. They never felt like they were enough. And what we see in this conversation that Jesus has with this Pharisee, this religious leader and expert, is a question that just screams insecurity. And I'll walk you through why. Because the question he actually brings to Jesus after Jesus has just spent a whole buttload of time with a group of people asking all questions about everything else, he comes to Jesus with this question. He says, which command, which command in God's law is the greatest? This is the question he brings forward to Jesus. And like we said, this Pharisee, he would have known his stuff. And in his knowledge and expertise, and because he was Jewish, he said, uh, because he knew and, and thought that all the commandments were equally as binding to one another. That a careless response by Jesus in this circumstance would have led to Jesus being accused for, undermine, accused for undermining God's law. And maybe you've had an experience, or maybe you've had a conversation with, with a Christian before that, that pretty much felt like they were saying, you know what, you're actually really broken. You're really broken. Love Jesus or else eternal life is really going to suck for you. Or, or maybe you've had an experience with, with church people before where they've come to you and said, here are all the rules, here are all the do's and don'ts, and this is how you are breaking them. You might have heard a follower of Jesus say that we as people just don't measure up, and, and that's annoyed you because the follow-up question is that if I'm so broken and if I am so sinful, then how could I possibly square up with a perfect God? And this is actually exactly the question this super religious person, this Pharisee, was asking. And he was asking it as if he was challenging, wanting to debate with someone in a uni lecture. He was bringing it to Jesus and saying, Tell me, Jesus, out of all these thou shalt nots, out of all these commandments, which one is the most important so I can call it even, so I can be good enough for God, so I can square up to God? And as a Pharisee, as a Pharisee, we've got to remember that all he had going for him in life was the fact that he knew his academics. He really knew his studies. His whole reputation wrote on the fact that he desired to be a great teacher of the Jewish law. But he knew that according to the Jewish law, no person was right with God. So in his insecurity, he's really asking through this question. He's asking another question of how can I feel and know I am enough? How can I be right? How can I be good enough by God? And Jesus could have gone all small detail, like super debatey, like you may know some Christians to do. But here's Jesus' response. Here is Jesus' response. Here is how he actually leads into this conversation and leans into this conversation with this Pharisee. Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence. This is the most important, the first on any list. And we see, we see Jesus doesn't bite at a scholarly debate. He doesn't answer with a technical angle. Rather, he actually answers relationally. But he doesn't stop there because he goes on. He goes on to say, but there is a second to go alongside of it. He says, love others as well, as well as you love yourself. That these two commands peg, uh, are pegs for everything in God's law. And the, oh, Sorry, I'll reword it. Love yourself. These two commands are pegs. Everything in God's law and prophets hangs from them. He says, it's actually really simple. He says, everything you weigh your intelligence and your prayer and understanding of God on, all your knowledge about Jewish and Old Testament law, hangs first and foremost on the most important commandment, that you can't love well unless you are loving your God well. That to get better at relationships and get better at life, love your God first so you can learn to love who God has created you to be. And with that known love, with that known love, like a real love of who you are, love others well 
I think we find that that insecurity is just this constant whisper in our ear, questioning us and demanding us to ask, am I doing enough? Not just am I doing this right, but am I doing enough? When is enough enough? Am I showing enough love? And I'm, am I enough of a person for this other person? And Jesus is speaking about a love that actually says you are enough. But what does this love actually mean? Because if love in Christianity is just left out there like this kind of hippie verb that we do because Jesus loved everyone, therefore Christians should love everyone, and that's the message that will change the world, that love will make the world go around, that that all you need is love, that love is an open door. If if that's where we lead people as followers of Jesus, then we're missing the point. (laughs) And others are actually missing out too. What does the love for ourselves actually even look like? How do I love others as well as I love myself? How am I meant to love this God? And because we are all searching for an antidote to insecurity, I want to share with you how Christianity answers and responds to what love means. What love means for ourselves, and what love means across the context of all our relationships in life. And with that, because we're coming from this angle of Christianity too and, and how we kind of look at love, you can, have absolute feel, uh, you can have absolute freedom to disagree. You can feel the freedom too. But, but I know that this topic is actually a really big topic. So I'm going to get someone else to kind of walk us through it because thankfully we have someone who can articulate what it means uh, to actually go about living out a life of love in obedience, not just to God, but in also, sorry, in living out a life of uh, of love in obedience to God, but also so we can come to know what that love for ourselves looks like, so we can love others. The person I want to turn to tonight is, is actually a writer by the name of Paul, and Paul had to be really articulate in his writings because he was talking to church people in Rome. And the church in Rome, it was divisive. There was one group of Jewish Christians who believed that this is how you go about living faith. Like, this is how you do it. But then there was another group of people that were new believers to this church, and they, they had a different story. They thought, this is how you're meant to go living out your faith. And the part of Paul's work that we're going to look at beautifully shows us what the love Jesus was speaking about to the Pharisee looks like. And woven within this passage, revealed to us, I believe, is actually an antidote to insecurity. This is what Paul writes. He says, So now there is no condemnation. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit had freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Since Paul says that there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ, that there is a solution, that there is a way to move forward from our insecurities. Which is funny because the laws of insecurity, the law of insecurity pretty much says that we all have a standard of ourselves that we expect ourselves to meet. That when it comes to insecurity, we all have a standard of, our, of ourselves that we expect ourselves to meet. We have a standard of ourselves that we expect ourselves to achieve. And the law of insecurity explains why we don't just get disappointed about something, but we experience disappointment in ourselves. Why we don't just see failure as an event, but we see failure as ourselves. Why we don't just feel guilty or regret about something, but feel shame. Why we feel like our standards aren't high enough at times. Why we don't want to leave the home at times because we don't just we just don't feel like we're enough for the people around us. We all have a standard of ourselves that we expect ourselves to meet. And even the Pharisee, even the Pharisee as a scholar, had a standard of himself that he had hoped to achieve. Because how on earth, like he said, like we said, was he meant to be uh, and meet this standard of a perfect God? See, the good thing in Paul's writing is that he says there's a solution. 
in his writing here, he says that the power of the life-giving spirit had freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And really quickly and really simply, because this is one of those words that just sounds offensive to a lot of people, and I can understand why, particularly when wacko Christians are telling people, you're sinful, this is what will happen to you because of your sin. You're sinful and repent, all these things. So I really tonight want to just really quickly share with you how I actually unpack sin with my students at school and kind of what a Christian response to sin actually looks like by looking at the Bible, which is so much more about relationship than it is about do's and don'ts and it being a rule book. And what we know about the sin from actually reading about Jesus' life, but also through the Bible too, is that sin is what ruptures our relationship with others. Sin is what ruptures our relationships with others and people we love. That sin is not a mistake. It's not a repeated mistake. Sin is not choosing to make a sin is choosing to make a repeated mistake. Intentionally knowing it would benefit yourself in the short term at the cost of others. That sin is choosing to not ask the question of what does love require of me because we are making a decision to say that I'm focusing on me first before others. That's why pride That's why pride is such a clear root of all sin. We demand control as humans and have always been sinful in nature. And sin is so prevalent in the evil of the world. Sin is what ruptures our relationships with others and God. Which when we look back to to Jesus' answer to the question of what is the greatest commandment, we see a complete contrast. What Paul is stating is that those who love their God belong to him, that there's no condemnation. With God as your place of home and source of strength, you don't need to fear the question of, Do I meet my own standard? Do I meet that mark? Do I meet the standard of this heavenly God? You don't need to uh, lead or live a life held back by the fear and the whispers that constantly are in your ear asking, am I enough? Why? Because you belong. And Paul is so just just uh, points that out so, so perfectly. You belong first and foremost because the creator of the universe says you belong and nothing can stop that. Paul even flexes some more good news. He talks about the power of the life-giving spirit in this verse, which actually just sounds really churchy. But if you believe that there is more to life, if you believe that there is more to life, then to some degree you have to believe that you have some type of a spirit or some type of a soul. And my question for you is that if you resonate with that in any way, maybe it's not through the sense of being or defining yourself as a Christian, but if you see yourself having a spirit or a soul, my question to you is, is your spirit secure or is it insecure? Is your soul filled in knowing who you are? Or do you find it at times just restless? And what Paul is saying is that when you feel insecure, when you acknowledge that there are insecurities, pride and imperfections, you've actually taken the first step towards making room for God's spirit to work. And spirit, again, being this churchy word, spirit is referring to the Holy Spirit, which for followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus believe that, that this is a person and that actually really just sounds crazy because you can't see this person that is within you. And that's probably why you might not hear a lot of kind of churches talk about the Spirit that much. You mostly just hear about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because we just kind of murmur through it at times because the old HS just kind of floats around in there and we don't really know what it's doing. It's kind of like some bad kombucha, like what's going on? But it's different. You see, as Paul chucks it in for followers of Jesus, we believe that the Spirit lives within us as an advocate. That in no way is a bad kombucha. Like this is good news for us as a helper in our life. The spirit is within us. And why is that good? Well, this is what Paul is saying, that the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin, the sin that ruptures relationship, that power that ruptures relationship that leads to death. That with Jesus came the arrival of an advocate and a helper who is attuned within you and attuned within your life. And you see, for Paul's original audience, 
this would have blown their face off. Like this was crazy because Paul was saying that the arrival of the Spirit is life-giving and breaks you from that law that you've been living under for so long. He's saying, guys, this is, this is really good. And for us, for us, for those who are followers of Jesus, for a follower of Jesus, there's some perspective here that actually breaks us from the law of insecurity because now we've got something better, that this life-giving Spirit that gives us with this freedom to walk in security. And you might ask, you might ask, how can God just allow me to overcome my insecurities like that? You see, God did what we can't do for ourselves. He filled a gap in the relationship, the gap that was ruptured in relationship with him. He filled the gap so we don't have to live a life where we're defined by our insecurities. And Paul writes about this more as well. In fact, in verse for he goes on to say he sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have and in that body god declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins that jesus filled the gap that where there was a rupture in relationship god entered into history as jesus and rewrote the story by carrying the burdens of just our broken life every insecurity and feeling of shame and taking the price of sin death for us so it would no longer have to have control over us you see paul is writing to the romans and stating that with jesus there is a brand new starting point a brand new starting point that comes in the form of a brand new promise that he rewrote the whole rule book to make it all about relationship. And Paul continues to write on, and, and this is when I think that if you've been sitting back or kind of drifting off for a little bit uh, in the heat of things, just lean in for a minute because Paul is about to show us what this all means for us and what it means for the life that we actually live. And he kind of wraps it up so beautifully. He says, So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. And this isn't just a peace. This peace that Paul is writing of, it isn't just a state of peace. It's not like a Zen state of peace in any way. It's not a Zen, uh, a Zen peace or a one-off or like a three-times experience in the moment of your life, feel-good kind of thing. This is a lifetime. This is a lifetime eternal peace, that there's a peace that I am known and I am loved and to be loved and to be known and have a sense of belonging is one of the greatest feelings in the world. A known love, a known love that says I'm confident in who I am. That I don't need to be envious of others' success. I don't need to compare myself. I don't need to be easily influenced by what others say. I don't need to be determined or measured by how I feel. That I'm actually secure. And that there's someone who is proud of me. This is a piece that points to an eternal perspective that says, if it doesn't matter in heaven, I won't let it upset me. I won't let it break me or waste my time here on earth. It's eternal peace. And the crazy thing, the crazy thing is that Paul had every reason to feel insecure, even in what he was writing, because for no good moral reason should have Paul felt in the slightest qualified, worthy or acceptable to write this letter to the church in Rome. Why? Because Paul had every reason to not feel enough. Not just because he wasn't a good enough writer, not just because he wasn't a good enough leader, not because he wasn't kind enough, he wasn't a good enough Christian. He was literally so, so, so far from good. If you know the story of Paul's life, Paul was once a man who literally went around killing and terrorizing Christians. His assigned mission in life was to wipe out followers of Jesus. And he wasn't morally justified enough to tell people about a new life 
when he was actually someone who once went around taking life from others. And yet, and yet we see in the, in the story of Paul, Paul went on to become one of the most influential people in the Jesus movement post-Jesus himself. When Paul saw and met the, uh, the risen Jesus, the risen Jesus after Jesus should have been dead, he knew he couldn't go back. He knew he had to take this seriously. Paul talks about this antidote to insecurity with such passion because it was something that affected him personally and had not just changed his life, but it had transformed his life. See, Paul was unqualified, but he didn't let his past disqualify him. And Jesus didn't let his past disqualify him. He had found new life and a new lens. I think if Paul was, was standing kind of where I am tonight, just sharing tonight, and if he could tell you one thing about how to overcome your insecurities, really just plain and simply, I think he would say something close to the fact that yes, our insecurities, our insecurities say we are made for less, that we have things in our life that just aren't right, that there is some mess, that there's some things that are actually just really hard to change, that things that need to be changed actually just seem almost impossible at times to fix. And it's so easy to do a DIY job on ourselves where we'll tell ourselves that we'll fix ourselves, that we'll save ourselves from everything that we're feeling, that we feel like a difficult project. Our insecurities say we are made for less. But if Paul was here, I think he'd remind us that grace says we are made for more. That grace says we are made for more. That God loves insecure people and he he loves using insecure people too. And that's so clear through the story of Paul. But grace, grace recognizes the mess, that we aren't perfect. That Yeah, we actually got some imperfections. That there are times I know that, that we know that we don't love others well, ourselves well. Or even for those of you that are followers of Jesus, that we love our God well. But embracing grace is the antidote to insecurity because grace says we are made for more. And the testimony of Paul is so clear in that, that grace actually calls us to a high standard of ourself that we don't always see in ourselves, but the one who designed us does. So how do we know? How do we, how do we feel and know we are enough? How do we know if we love enough? Well, if Paul, this once Christian killer, could remind us of anything. Like I said, it's to do this to embrace grace. After he had his life completely transformed and why he went around writing to so many people to actually take this next step, this application of embracing grace. And we do this thing here at Beyond called a Four Monday because we believe what's the point in coming to church on Sunday if it's not going to change you, if it's not going to impact you for Monday. So what I want to invite you and challenge you to step into this week, if you've never thought about it before, if you've just felt empty, to actually take on what Paul kind of writes about it, well, more so is so clearly in pushing forward this idea of embracing grace. That embracing grace means that I'm not what my insecurities say I am, that I'm actually made for more. And if you're like, what does embracing grace actually even practically look like? What it practically looks like to actually live it out or what that next step would be? I challenge you, if you're here for part one, if you haven't done it yet, take the opportunity to write down your insecurities and actually look at what you wrote and accept them as imperfections. Accept them as imperfections. That, that's the first step of embracing grace. And I know we mentioned earlier that maybe you've had a pretty negative experience with Christians before that have told you, you know, you're broken, you need God or else. And I don't want to add to your bad experience here of church, but more so actually help you embrace this invitation that's on offer. Because by accepting your insecurities as simply imperfection and not as things that have to define you, you can take the step forward to embracing the person God sees you as. You can take a step forward and towards embracing grace. And embracing grace relentlessly draws us back 
to a place of belonging, of being known, and a knowing that we are loved. If that is your foundation for yourself, think about what it means for your capacity to love others. Think about what it means for your capacity to love the people in your life, your friends, your family, your partner, your wife, your hubby. Think about what it would look like for your life. Embracing grace allows you to see yourself clearly. And when you see yourself clearly, you can love others well. Embracing grace paves the way to healthy relationships. And we can do life feeling like we constantly have to perform. But if you and I want to get better at relationships, then we shouldn't have to feel like we're, we are wearing a mask on stage all the time. In fact, your friends, your friends shouldn't be the ones who make you feel like you have to perform on a stage at times. They should be the ones pulling you off to remind you who you really are and taking the mask off to remind you who you really are. Because you weren't designed merely to be impressive. You weren't designed merely to be impressive. You were designed for connection. And we can't have healthy relationships when we're grappling with our self-worth. But once we embrace our imperfections, which really are the very things that bind and glue us together as people, only once we embrace and accept our imperfections are we fully able to embrace grace. That when we embrace being passive and we identify it, when we embrace being our pretend self and we identify it, when we embrace the people-pleasing and we identify it, we are slipping into our securities. When we see all these things, we have an awesome opportunity to actually take on the encouragement of what Paul writes about. The encouragement and some of the concluding words that he actually uses in, in the final bits of his passage. And I feel like with these words, we can step away knowing that there's nothing that can separate us from actually living a life of being known and being loved. This is how Paul kind of wraps up. He says, and I am convinced, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, not life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. That no power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That God's grace, God's grace is reckless because it costs us nothing but costs God everything. And this is a God who is far more patient with you than you are with yourself. That though loving everyone and taking care of every need all the time, feels impossible and is impossible loving god well points us to his love for us and his love for others and for followers of jesus just as we wrap up tonight for followers of jesus a challenge for us if we really believe that we are designed for connection if we're going to be more like jesus and love more like jesus not as christians but as disciples as followers then we should be great at relationships and people should look in on our lives and say i'm not sure i believe what they believe but I want the kind of relationships that they have. We need to be people who are constantly battling our insecurities and point people to the solution and the solution to repairing and growing great relationships and a great life. And it starts with embracing grace for all people. This invitation is not exclusive. If you want to find out more of what this looks like or more about how you can get better at relationships, we're so excited next week. We've got some experts coming in to do a Q&A panel with. And we'd love to invite you and anyone else you know along to that night as we look at how we can go about getting better at life by getting better at our relationships. I'd love to pray for us. And let's do that together. God, we do. We just thank you for the people in our life that you've placed there. 
who can pour into us. God, we know there's people that we can, uh, yeah, we know in life that there are people sometimes that can just be people that are dragging us down. But Father, we do. We just thank you for the people that we can be honest with. But Lord, at the same time, we just pray over that whisper that comes into our ears sometimes that comes with a demand and comes with questioning of, am I enough? And God, we just thank you and recognize that even in our imperfection and even in our securities that we can write out some things that we can name, some things we just know about ourselves, but, but even writing them down can actually make us feel such a shame too. We know that you see them, God. But Father, we just thank you that we don't have to live a life defined by them, that you wrote yourself into history, extending a brand new starting point for us, that God, there's times in our life where we need change, but you're a heavenly Father who wrote yourself in for life transformation. So God, we do, we pray for the courage this week to step out and embrace grace. God, we just give you thanks. We pray these things in your name. Amen.